0: The Art of Leadership Network.
1: Welcome. Kerry Neuhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here. Man, what a thrill to welcome you to the podcast today. So glad you're tuning in. And today's episode is brought to you by The Art of Building a Generous Congregation. Do you know that 30% of all giving happens in the last 45 days? It is not too late to make a difference. Join my course at the theartofgenerositycourse.com or click the link in the description of this episode. And by Glue, you can train your team and volunteers to engage with people did for free at get.glue.us slash reach. Well, Philip Yancey is back on the podcast. I am so glad to have him back. You absolutely love the first time he was on the podcast, both on YouTube and then here on the audio. By the way, if you prefer to watch, we have a great and growing YouTube channel. You can go check it out. Normally, you know, 10 people listen to every single person who watches, but hey, that's changing. Times are changing. We're over on YouTube too. Anyway, This is on all the channels. So Philip Yancey talks about the grace crisis, something really close to my heart, Uh, goes and tells some stories about his two hours in the White House with Bill Clinton. We do talk about Roe v. Wade and why he thought publishing What's So Amazing About Grace back in, well... 25 years ago, would get him canceled. So Philip Yancey is an award-winning author, renowned theologian, and influential speaker who has touched the hearts and minds of millions with his insights and captivating storytelling. He's a phenomenal writer. He has written 13 gold medallion award-winning books and won two ECPA Books of the Year Award for What's So Amazing About Grace and The Jesus I Never Knew. Four of his books have sold over 1 million copies, and, He has updated and revised his classic book, What's So Amazing About Grace? We touch on that too. He continues to inspire readers with his deep understanding of grace and its transformative power. Hey, if you're new to the podcast, I want to say welcome to you. We know that this is free to you, but you pay with your time. I try to bring you the very best conversations I can, the kind of conversations you would hopefully want to have if you sat down with Philip Yancey and had an hour or so to spend with him. Yeah, it's the green room conversations, the dinner conversations that I love bringing to you. Hey, we are on your side here. And one of the things I do is I develop courses to help church leaders. And as you know, we don't have a lot of time left in 2023, but you have time to raise a little more money. And I know one of the things pastors, hate is getting up and trying to raise money at their church. So I wanted to make it a lot easier. Do you know 30% of all the giving happens in the last 45 days of the year? And I've got a brand new course called The Art of Building a Generous Congregation. Just released it a couple of months ago. We've helped a lot of leaders through it. I would love to help you. It's not too late to start 2024 on a solid financial footing. If you just invest a few hours this month, we tried a whole new format with this course. Very digestible, easy to do, hyper- practical, and you can hit the ground running with more resources for ministry in 2024. So how do you join? Go to theartofgenerositycourse.com. That's theartofgenerositycourse.com before it's too late, or click the link in the description of this episode wherever you happen to be listening. Did you know that glue has recently crossed an important milestone? It's truly a moment to celebrate. So I asked Devin Klein to share what that moment was about. Let's hear what she has to say.
0: Yeah, so this is an exciting milestone that we're celebrating. So, GLUE has connected over 250,000 individuals into local churches. And this is exciting news um, as church attendance is on the decline, and a lot of people are questioning whether people who are spiritually open who maybe are not connected to a church want to be connected to a church. And so… Through a lot of our partners and our own campaigns, we're finding that people really do want to be connected to a church, um, somebody where they can ask questions, receive prayer, have a safe place to explore uh, spirituality and Jesus. Um, and so we really want to celebrate the churches who are on the front lines uh, coming forward to serve these individuals in need. Um, they've shown up in a really exciting way.
1: So a quarter million people is a lot of people. Where are they coming from? Where are you finding them?
0: Yeah, so GLUE has worked with over 30 outreach partners, and these are organizations who either through live events or digital campaigns, um, they are attracting individuals who are spiritually open. And so uh, through a form, uh, they connect them into the GLUE network of churches, and right now about every 1.8 minutes, we are connecting a new individual into a church.
1: Curious? Well, you can jump in to connect to individuals in your community at get.glue.us slash reach. Glue is spelled G-L-O-O. That's get.glue.us slash reach. And now, my conversation with Philip Yancey. Philip, welcome back.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here. And I brought my special Commonwealth mug in honor of your uh, Canadian brethren there.
1: There we go. There we go. Well, most of the audience is American, but uh, for the Canadian and Commonwealth people listening, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, uh, good to be with you today. Yeah, and I'm, I'm drinking tea in honor okay, of Okay, all right. But you've got the cool mug. You've got the cool mug, Philip. All right. Um, so... You know, it was interesting. You're re-releasing What's So Amazing About Grace 25 years later. Pivotal yes. book in my ministry. I mean, I still remember the first time I read through it. And it was very powerful. Moved me to tears. Made mm. me go, this is a God I want to follow. Like, yeah, mm, this sounds, I'm signing up for this. But you wanted to call what's... You had a subtitle for it <laughs> when you were first ready to release it. I want to start there. What what did you want to call the book? Yes,
2: when I turned it in, I said, uh, here's the title. It's what's so amazing about grace and why don't Christians show more of it? And they said, <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, a lot of Christian books are given as gifts. And if somebody gave you a book with that title, you'd think, ah, oh, what's going on here? I said, well, yeah, but we need to say this. And, and they, they finally convinced me the problem, Philip, is that that many words don't fit on the spine of the book. When <laughs> oh, yeah, there, there's a good Okay. Answer. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, but, then I went back, it was interesting to me, going back and, and revising and updating, Kerry, because 25 years ago, the hottest news was Bill Clinton and a White House intern. You know? yeah. <laughs> How much yeah. has changed in politics since then? The world was looking up. The Berlin Wall fell in uh, 1989. Communism pretty well collapsed across Europe. Uh, Fukuyama wrote this book on uh, the end of history, saying, all the entire world is moving toward liberal democracy, you know, this is, we're all together in this, and my goodness, here we are, 25 years later, and it's like we've rolled the clock back, we're in a divided society again, a divided globe with a Cold War uh, heating up, actually, you know, with threats of nuclear weapons and all sorts of stuff that we thought were past history. So in just 25 years, that uh, that period where even then I thought we need some grace, it has been amplified and ramped up.
1: What did you see in the late 90s among Christians that made you want to use that subtitle? Because I would say, yeah, everybody today listening to this in 2023, 24, whenever you listen to yeah. it, like yeah yeah totally christians need more grace but what was so evident to you back then that that would have been an accurate subtitle mm-hmm. for the book
2: the interest in politics was just beginning really when i, I grew mm-hmm. up in a in a very faith saturated society in in the yeah. south where everybody went to church and there was this kind of christian veneer over society and there were really good parts of that. People are polite, they're nice, you know, you know they say ma'am and sir and <laughs> please and thank you and all that. Uh, and they went to church. But uh, we never talked about politics until, actually, until John Kennedy ran for president. And then he was a mm-hmm. Catholic, so we started hearing sermons about if America elects a Catholic president— but, uh, it, that, that wasn't why we were there. We were here to be different from the rest of the world. And in those days, it was mostly in a, in a lifestyle way, you know, things we didn't do. We didn't go to movies. We didn't drink wine. We didn't smoke those kind of things. And some denominations took it much further. Than the one I was in it was much more strict than that. And that's how we were identified. Come out from among them and be separate. <laughs> the Bible says. And that's how we showed that we were separate. Right. Well, then there was a move toward politics, and it started in in that era. And as I look back on it, and I I talk to people involved, these things changed for the oddest reasons. Uh, hmm. There was a move led by Francis Schaefer and C. Everett Koop on the abortion issue and some of the end-of-life issues, and they went around and Drummed up support saying Christians should really be involved. And for the first time, evangelicals and Catholics kind of joined hands on some of those issues. But often, Carrie, it's, it's because of uh, a little quirk. So, for example, in the early nineties, there were, there was no Zoom like we're doing now. You couldn't just get anybody on, on TV. So when CNN and, um, uh, Fox Network or whoever wanted a quote from a Christian, uh, they didn't go to Billy Graham. He was hard to get to. You'd have to go through all these layers of people and, and get permission. And he was very careful and very busy. But people like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson had a satellite uplink in their office. All they had to do is push a button and they're live on CNN. And hmm. they were pretty entertaining, especially Jerry Falwell. You know, he's a, he's a funny, charming guy. And they were both very political people. And so the broader culture started seeing American evangelicals primarily through the lens of politics. and they, and that's almost exclusively how they see them now. You know, you hear again and again what percentage of evangelicals voted for donald trump and 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 that's how they that's how they view evangelicals. Mm. And uh, boy, I think it's historically, we should have learned a lesson by now when the church and state get in bed together the state always wins <laughs> you know the church uh, starts compromising because politics is an adversary sport you uh, you try to kill your enemies not uh, love them you know <laughs> you try to win and um, it, unfortunately I, I think in recent years we've only enhanced the divisions going on in my country and I know it's not quite the same where you are, but there are getting close. closer.
1: divisions even in Canada too, right? Oh, yeah. No, it's changing. <laughs> it's definitely changing. Yeah. Um, when you look back on that, because, I mean, you were very much alive and writing, and, you know, a lot of our listeners wouldn't have a memory of the 90s other than, oh, that was my kindergarten or whatever, <laughs> right? But you and I remember the 90s. Um, what was shifting? What was changing why do you think there was, yeah, there was a satellite link in Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, but why the moral majority? Why this kind of lack of, because you even mentioned in the introduction to the new book, you know, the death of, there was still large bipartisan support for mm-hmm. legislative measures back in the 90s. And that's crumbled in the last 20 years. But why do you right. think Christians got... right? Super interested in politics and culture, and and started the culture wars.
2: Yeah, they would probably say we didn't start it. The culture changed, okay. and and they could make that case. Uh, if you go back to when I was a, in kindergarten, myself, so that would have been the Eisenhower era, and. Uh, in God we trust was put on our coins in the 50s, not back in the 17th, 18th century. I but, only learned that recently that that yeah, was like, that's right. like
1: 80 years old. That's it. 70 right. years old, whatever. Yeah.
2: And well, I'm not quite that old, but yeah. No, no, no. Um, my <laughs> bad. It's not the 2030s, it's 2020s. But yeah, yes. yeah, you're right. Yeah. And then, um, same thing with the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, I went to one nation under God. That was added, those, that phrase there. So there was a move, you know, Billy Graham was, always won the most respected individual in the United States. He always won that contest, more than even presidents and people like that. And there there was this Christian consensus. You know, we had come out of World War II. We felt we were the righteous nation, leading the Allies against, uh, and, you know, there is some truth to that for sure. But um, the culture gradually started changing. Of course, we went through the 1960s which was sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know, these are not <laughs> things you hear about in church. And they in, in a sense, the culture war started with that bump of uh, a, a whole new demographic of young people who are determining the culture. So television started picking up on that, clothing styles, hairstyles, glasses, you know, all of that was changing very dramatically in the 1960s, I know a lot of your readers and listeners uh, don't have a memory of the 60s. They weren't around. And I tell them, whatever rumor you've heard about the 1960s, it, it's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This, it, was a, it was a wild and crazy time. And in, in my church, for example, we had uh, burnings of Beatles albums and rock and roll, you know, and the idea of rock music in church, which is pretty common these days. Would have been unheard of back then. Mm-hmm. It was still the mm-hmm. piano and organ and hymns. And so a lot changed there. And then, of course, it kept changing. So the, the, uh, LGBTQ issues started coming up and, uh, then g- transgender issues after that. And, and the church really didn't know how to respond. And so when people came along with kind of a political agenda, let's get our nation back, uh, they jumped on board because they, they were worried, they were concerned about trends in, in the country.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where does the meanness come from in your estimate?
2: Where does the meanness come from? You know, that, that puzzles me more than yeah. just about anything else, Gary, because right here, uh, yeah. Yeah. every year around uh, Lent period, I, I go back through... That lovely passage in John 13 to 17, Jesus last night with his disciples and he's, uh, you know, he's 33 years old and he's, he's telling them, I'm going to leave. I've done my job. It's, it's finished. I finished the work. So it's up to you. Um, what do you, what do we learn? Well, he starts off by saying, you're here to serve, not to, not to rule. And he washes their feet. You know, go out and, and find people whose feet you can wash and then he talks about unity how important it is to have unity the same unity he prays for in the church that he experiences in in the trinity an amazing thought and then he says uh, and people will know you're christians by your by your love they'll know that you're related to me you're my followers by your love that's yeah. that's the clue it's so clear there and um and yet you know, Christians are generally known by their fractiousness, by the 45,000 denominations in the world, by the fact that we can't agree on things. And we do a, a, certainly a better job with the service. There are so many, so many great Christian works around the world. Everywhere I go, where there have been missionaries, there are great works of, of reaching out to the needy. But we haven't done so well in the unity, and again, partly because of that whole politics thing, love and politics don't go together very easily. And when people are afraid, uh, their first response is not love usually. it's It's pull up the barriers and define ourselves against something. And I think that's the period we've been in the last couple of decades.
1: We had such a great conversation. Last time you were on the podcast and we talked about your autobiography of sorts Mm. and the meanness of your Christian upbringing. When you look back on that, Philip, I mean, everybody thinks they're right, right? I think I'm right. You think you're right. We we all think we're right. Most of us think we're, we're somewhat justified for what we do. When you look back on that kind of harsh church culture and upbringing, that narrow, rigid, we're better than everybody else. Use the stick, not the carrot, kind of childhood. What do you think the internal justification among your family, the church you grew up in, was in their mind? Like, if you if you don't want to create a straw man but a steel person, you know, <clears> steel <throat> man argument. What do you think they thought they were accomplishing?
2: Yeah, I think standing
1: up for for truth. Uh,
2: I'll, I'll give them credit for that. They they really believed. We heard sermons about hellfire uh, just about every week, and it's the children of light against the children of darkness. You know, they would take these phrases even from the Bible, and uh, kind of dig their feet in the sand based on those phrases. And I, I yeah, I mentioned at one point in the uh, in the memoir where the light fell that I would go around at the church's uh, behest with these gospel tracts and explain to people that they were going to hell, you know, and they'd have these kind of cartoonish um, images of hell. And then I I found that it's really hard to have a good relationship with with a person when your main object is to tell them they're gonna spend eternity in hell. (laughs) 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 That's a tough way to start. And uh, I go back and, and and we we didn't emphasize how can we be known by our love? Uh, later, I found there are some churches who do that. I remember hearing from one in Canada that used to go around and, and put parking coins in meters that had run out, and then they would leave a little a, a little notice on the windshield, you know, under the windshield wiper that said, uh, we just want to be your friends. And if you ever want to come to a church, you might want to try ours. That's, that's a, that's a great approach, isn't that it? That is yeah. a great approach. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, we didn't have that approach. And yeah, it was, just, it was just a yeah. time. Mm-hmm. And I, it was I, a time. Yeah. And I've been to other countries where Christians are a strong or, or a small minority actually, well, like communist China. That's an amazing example because, uh, there had been 7,000 missionaries in communist China when the communists took over in 1950, and Chairman Mao kicked them all out. And I've interviewed some of them who went to places like the Philippines or Hong Kong or Singapore. And, and they said, we've believed we were called by God. And, and we look back at China and we thought, how can the church even survive without us to, run the hospitals and orphanages and seminaries and things that we had established there. And then it was closed for about thirty years. When they left, there were probably two million Christians in China. When they went back, to their amazement they found about 50 million Christians wow. in China. And and the Chinese did it just by being like Jesus in the midst of a, a very hostile society. And Hearing getting to know some of the underground church particular particularly and hearing them pray, I never heard them pray, God get rid of this godless government. They just they prayed, God help us to to be witnesses in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. And and the greatest revival in the history of the world took place. I was gonna say before our eyes, but we we didn't know what was going on until it was open and we could come in and see again. And now people say there are probably about a hundred million Christians. In China. And I, I just don't think that would happen if they had stood on their street corners and, and, you know, preached about hellfire and brimstone. I don't think that's the way to, to draw a contrast to the people around you. And, uh, in, in the South I grew up in, especially on racial issues, poverty issues, we were on the wrong side of, of most of them and just separated ourselves from, I think, what Jesus really wants us to be.
1: How do you define grace for someone who is unfamiliar with the concept i I kind of avoid
2: uh, a textbook dictionary definition of grace at, at one point i say i say this, I say, um, grace means that um that there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. God is a God of love, God loves you utterly." God, the God of the universe is capable of loving every single person on earth. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And I think that's where, that's where grace speaks to our society, because we're a competitive ranking society. We judge each other by our looks, by our salaries, by what schools we went to, by what kind of car we drive, you know, it's that kind of ranking, ranking, ranking. And Christians, I think, the great sin that Christians are subject to is the same sin of the Pharisees of judging. Oh, I'm I'm more spiritual than those people over there, mm-hmm. as the Pharisee said about the tax collector. You know, I I'm not like that guy over there. And the tax collector had had no grounds for God's love. He just said, "God help me, I'm a sinner." And uh, and and Jesus told that story to say, which one does this guy listen to? It's pretty clear what the answer is. So grace is, is an expression of who God is in, in expected and unexpected ways. The expected way is that, is that God is, is a God of love and God, love just emanates from God. And that was Jesus' message. The unexpected way is the people who receive that love. Henry Nouwen used to say that grace is a free gift. Can't do anything to earn it, deserve it. By definition, you can't, but to receive a gift, you have to have your hands open, and if you don't, like the Pharisees, close your, your hands in a tight fist, I'm, I'm okay, I'm okay. Grace falls to the ground, unreceived. And that was the sad thing about the Pharisees. They got everything right, but the most important thing, you know, mm. they kept all the rules. That was good. You couldn't fault them on that. They tied their kitchen spices, you know, salt, 10% of my salt, 10% of my pepper and and jesus said but you missed the whole message um and and we're always in danger of doing that every era of the church i i read about
1: yeah i think so particularly today so i want to go back to the 90s when you released the the first until recently only edition of what's so amazing about grace you said you didn't think it would sell well sell well at the time, that it's like, yeah, you poured a lot into it, but you didn't have high hopes for the book. It's two million copies and counting now. What yeah. what, 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 made you think it wasn't going to particularly do well when you released it?
2: Well, I, I mentioned in the book that, uh, in the preface that I wrote, that um, when I put it in an envelope, back in those days, we actually put book, book manuscripts in an envelope and mm-hmm. mailed them to a publisher rather than hitting a button. And, uh, so I, I stuffed it in this envelope, had a cover letter, uh, licked it, you know, put tape over it. And I said to my wife, uh, this may be the last book I write for the evangelical world, surely. And, and maybe the last book that I'll, I'll write for the Christian world because it's got a whole chapter on Bill Clinton, uh, who was the object of much bituperation from the Christian church in his Mm -hmm. days, and now we look back and say, it really wasn't as bad as some some things that have happened since then, but at the time, he was a lightning rod. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've never gotten such hate mail as when I did an article in Bill Clinton, an interview with him. Unbelievable. And I thought, my goodness, I wonder what the White House gets. Well, I had a pretty good idea of what the White House gets. And that's what they think Christians are. Because if they treat me like this as an editor at Christianity Today, how are they treating Bill Clinton? So I, I had this whole article about a whole chapter about Bill Clinton and that experience. And then I had a whole chapter about my friend Mel White. And Mel was uh was well known in the evangelical world. He taught at Fuller Seminary, he pastored a Covenant Church, he did he he worked as a ghostwriter for people like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and Billy Graham um wrote books for them but he had a secret life and and there was this i tell the story of how under stress one day he just kind of broke down and told me that he had been living a double life that he was actually a gay person he had gone through every kind of aversion shock therapy to change and and he didn't change so he was about to declare himself as openly gay and he, he knew what that would cost in terms of his career. And um this was a whole new world to me. I, I not knowing that I had told j anti-gay jokes about uh you know around Mel and now I was ashamed of them. And and I learned about Grace, it's put to the test not when you're around somebody just like you who thinks like you, votes like you, but it's put to the test when you're around somebody who is challenging to you, maybe social status, maybe race, or maybe uh, difference in morality. And, and so that was that was a time when my own grace was put to the mm-hmm. test, uh, both of those actually. And I tried to be very honest and open about it. and and I thought that would be the end of my career.
1: As so that Christian Christians writer. would basically cancel you before there was actually cancellation. Right, yeah. right.
2: And, and it didn't happen. As you say, it's my best selling book that I've written. And I, I think, you know, I grew up in a very fundamentalist Bible oriented culture mm-hmm. and I kind of learned where the, where the landmines are. And I also learned when you, when you approach a really tricky issue, stay very close to Jesus. (laughs) Mm. So I I tell Jesus' stories over and over and retell them and put them in modern context and just keep going back to Jesus and saying, hey, I am not the radical. Jesus is the radical. If you have a complaint, go to him, you know? And um, I think that's always a good rule, actually.
1: (laughs) So you got a lot of uh, static over the Christianity Today article, but what happened when you told those stories about Clinton and Mel White in what's so amazing about grace? Did your inbox fill up with with hate email, or what was the reaction? Again, two million copies. I mean, a book a book right. going viral.
2: Yeah, it was very different, and I, I think part of it was because I did enfold them in in a book about grace. I mean, this is a seri- right. it's a serious title. Somebody
1: you had, you had seventy thousand words, not two thousand words, right? To right to unfold them right. in the story, and and that's
2: why i did very carefully uh connect them to jesus teaching and and you know i I wasn't i wasn't writing about what is the right or wrong of this issue that that wasn't my point it's how do i treat somebody who has this issue even if i find it morally reprehensible Mm -hmm. that's that's what we haven't done very well And, and jesus did that so well so so many of his stories the wrong person is the hero. It's I know. A, I know. It's the good I'm, Samaritan, not the good rabbi. It's the, uh, you know, it's the prodigal son, not the obedient older brother. All the way through, he just hammers that point home. And grace is always surprising and unexpected and always goes further than we can imagine or even that we're comfortable with. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I, I represent my own readers by running up, hitting into that, unexpected uh, wall Mm -hmm. and trying to come to terms with it and just saying, I don't like it, but that's what Jesus commands us to do. Yeah.
1: What do you do when you get a critic who writes to you for a piece or somebody who really doesn't like your stance on it? Well, you're not really taking a stand. Well, you are. I mean, you have a point of view about grace, right? You're making a story. (laughs) You're underscoring who the heroes are and who they're not. What is, I mean, you've been at this many, many decades now. And what I sense in you is an open heart, a humble spirit, uh, someone who enjoys good conversation, not someone who's cynical, jaded, beat down, tired of it. Doing interviews just because you got to do mm-hmm. interviews for the book, you know how that, you know, running the junket. Sure. I, I I sense a curiosity, a wonder, and a and a. A beauty in your heart, that's the word that mm. pops in, Philip. How how have you not let it get to you? And then what do you do when you see that stuff? Hmm. I have learned a lot of that style by
2: being a journalist. Hmm. So, uh, for example, if, if well, I was called to the White House to interview Bill Clinton. I spent several hours with him, uh, just the two of us. Well, actually, there was another guy from Christianity today as well. And we could ask him anything. And I, I learned early on that if you if you charge in there, Mr. are going to have to neuralize how many people are opposed to you because of you. Immediately, those walls go up. You'll never get anything interesting from him. You'll only get these kind of sound bites that he's said a thousand times, because there's no real authentic dialogue going on, and so it becomes a performance. And that, that's no fun at all. So my job as a journalist is to draw out of him something that will represent him authentically so that the readers can judge whether they agree or disagree, whether mm-hmm. they like him or don't like him. That's my job. And it's, it's not to, uh, oppose him. Mm-hmm. It, it's to bring him out in a way that is authentic to who he is. And, and so when I'm talking to somebody and, and I have a basic disagreement, especially as a journalist, isn't it really not my job to say you're wrong and here's why? That that just won't happen. It, my job is to say, let me see if I understand your reasoning to come to that conclusion. Uh, and, and then as I do that, I may say, But other people would see that differently. Other people would, would say the opposite of what you just said. What do you, what do you say to them? And I'm, I'm always just trying to clarify who they are and bring them out. And people kind of like being paid attention to, you know, (laughs) that's what journalists do. Um, there, there are some who make their living by being the, you know, the, Contradicting everything you say, but I don't think you get you you get the authentic person out. You get the uh, you just get the script that is repeated a hundred times.
1: So is that how you does that approach inform how you handle your critics? If you get that angry letter or email or text,
2: yes, I try to find something that they say that I can affirm. Mm. So I say, we really. We really see this immigration issue differently, but I appreciate the fact that you seem to really care about it. Maybe depending on what side they are, care about the legal structure that we need to honor or care about people who are oppressed trying to get into a free nation. You know, I, I find, try to find something that I can just, yeah, we're, we're together on that. I I agree with you that those are both important concerns. We may end up somewhere else on the issue. But I, I applaud that. And, and, uh, and thank you for pointing out how important that is.
1: How do you keep your heart open in light of where the culture has gone all the critiques. I mean, I asked Kevin Kelly that recently, the the writer and former editor of Wired magazine, he said, remain astonished. I thought that was a great answer. He says <laughs> he's over 70 now. He's like, I'm just astonished every day. There's so many miracles out there. But mm-hmm. why I I just love your disposition. And I talk to a lot of leaders who at 30 are starting to get cynical. At 40, I was cynical and it's been a, a clawback for me, Philip. Like really I'm trying to try to find hope every day. And I'm just Curious. You seem to have navigated that so well. What are, what are some keys? Yeah.
2: Well, go back to some of the letters that came in about what's so about grace. The most moving letters by far, and there are maybe hundreds of them, were from families who had a, a gay person in the family and had seen them through the, you, you are immoral. We, we're going to break off relations with you. I don't want you here on Thanksgiving. You'll pollute your nephews and nieces, you know, that kind of thing. And, and then they realize I have, I've cut off my, my son, my daughter. And surely, surely that's wrong. I, I, what, what I did to them, you know, we, we have nothing. I don't, I don't even have any contact with them. And as you know from reading the memoir, I lived in a family like that. I have only one brother and he and my mother didn't speak for over 50 years, had no contact whatsoever until the very end of her life. So when you're around people like that and they tell you their heartfelt stories, I think that's that's what I learned from Jesus that the, the person is so much more important than the principle. <laughs> you know Really, God is the one who, who judges prin- the principles, how, how you did in life. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not my job my job is to love, my job is to serve.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And that Jesus is so clear about that, especially in the passage I mentioned, John 13 to 17. And frankly, when you do get to know these people in their pain, it's easy to care. It's easy to see their perspective. So the more, I, d- I didn't cut off relations with Mel White. Uh, I'm still in, in touch with him. And, and we've had many close contacts over the years, and he's, he's a great friend. And there are some things he's done that I wouldn't feel comfortable doing. He goes around protesting Christian colleges because of their, their attitude or their rules about gay people. And I'm not a protester, and, uh, you know, it's a conflicted issue, but I do care about Mel. And, um, I won't stop doing that. And I, I think I'm once going to not stop doing that. <laughs> hmm.
1: I, I feel like there might be another question there. like Because I think we're such a uh, factionalized culture, so tribal right now, and there's a lot of people who will be, well, if you're going to go and protest Christian colleges, we can't be friends anymore. If you're going to vote X and I vote mm-hmm. Y, we can't be friends anymore. What are some keys to loving... Mel, who you've known for many many years, when your paths diverge, and I'm sure you've got dozens of other people in your life like that too, Philip. Mm-hmm. Well, I tell the
2: story in the book very briefly about the original uh, Jane Roe Roe versus Wade, mm-hmm. and this is a, a woman who got she had kind of an unsavory past, and she got caught up, got, got pregnant, wanted to have a abortion, took it all the way to the Supreme Court, and the and the uh, pro-abortion lobby kind of got behind her and made her their poster child. And uh, Operation Rescue, of course, is a Christian organization that mm. strongly opposes uh, abortion. And they would deliberately rent, in fact, they rented an office in the very building where where Planned Parenthood had their offices and they would have these posters and sometimes March up and down the parking lot with these signs and appear and they would call her baby killer and, 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 all this. Well, then, um, the, the precedent of Operation Rescue changed and a new guy came along and he noticed this woman. He didn't, I think at first he wasn't even sure who she was out in the parking lot on her own smoking a cigarette because she couldn't smoke indoors. So he just sat down beside her and started talking and it turned out to be Jane Rowe. It turned out to be. You know, the center of the whole abortion controversy, and he just befriended her, and he would sit mm. out there with her sometimes and and he wouldn't go and pick at her and yell at her and and hold up posters, and he became her friend. and later she became a Christian, renounced her original stance, and it's a, it's a dramatic story. So there's your difference right there. you know he he kept caring about the person. Even though he didn't change anything about the issue, but it it had a dramatic impact on on that person.
1: So twenty five years later, a revised and expanded version of what's so mm. amazing about grace. Um, what what did you change about the book? How did you update it? How did you expand it? What how how does the voice? And yeah, no, let's let's start there. And then I have the sure. Book
2: well millennials particularly or or even generations after that gen x i guess we're out of letters now i don't know what the next one's <laughs> i
1: heard alpha's coming down the Aa or so. something yeah yeah yeah
2: um but millennials don't relate to a lot of the stories that i tell um for <laughs> instance we actually hired a millennial to go through and and notice some things that she didn't relate to and one was what is Yugoslavia? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that was a big deal back when I wrote that book. It was pretty and here was this one nation that broke into seven nations. Talk about a, an example of ungrace and not being able to get along. But she didn't know. She didn't even know what that word was. Well, it's unfortunately, it's relatively easy to substitute modern examples of ungrace. We're in the middle right now of a war between Russia and Ukraine, and it has global consequences it's in the newspaper every day so uh, it was easy to go through and just change examples into more contemporary examples and not just examples but to show how the world has changed even in those 25 years how it's become a world where ungrace is even more pronounced and in your face and Unapologized. You know, it used to be that in, I don't know what it's like in the Canadian parliament, but in our, in our Congress, people were respectful to each other. And we talk about my right honorable opponent, as they still do in, in London. Now we had a, we had a presidential contest where the one candidate called her opponents a basket of deplorables and the other opponent called his opponents deranged and human scum. Now that's how far it's gone from right honorable opponent, you know. (laughs) So we're, we're in a, we're in a grace crisis. (laughs) We really are. Um, people say the United States has never been more divided. Well, we had a civil war. I don't know if I go that far. (laughs) Yeah. That was pretty (laughs) bad. That That was bad American history. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, definitely we are, we're on the, we're on the wrong trajectory in terms of grace versus ungrace. Yeah.
1: How did that make you feel when you revisited this and you kinda of, I mean, I'm sure you kinda of had thought about it in the twenty five years, but looking back on it going, yeah, this is actually worse than when I wrote it.
2: Yes, I, I had some premonitions back in the uh, in the early part, earlier part of the century that the infatuation with politics was not going to end well for the church. Hmm. And historically it doesn't. I mean, it may, it may for a while because you get your access to power and that feels good. And you could get certain laws passed that you think are important. But then you wake up one day and you realize I was used (laughs) that it's the politicians who run the world, not, not the church. And they're going to do what they want and they'll use us and then just throw us away. And that happens historically again and again. And then what happens is you have to go around and explain to people. You know, the gospel is really not about what your position is on this issue or that issue. The gospel is about, it's about we can't make it on our own. We need a savior. We need somebody to fix us, you know, to change us, transform us. And, and that's not a political thing. That's a, that's a much more intimate personal religious thing.
1: You mentioned having millennials and Gen Z kind of pour over the material. What are you learning about this next generation, these next generations, and grace?
2: A lot of what I struggled with growing up doesn't exist anymore in, a wide, in wide places. Um, the legalism is, is not an issue. You know, Fads that hit the broader culture, like tattoos, for example, or hair, uh, funny hairstyle or whatever, those changed very quickly. They, they hit the church almost contemporaneously, you know, just right away. That was really different. We were trying to be different from surrounding culture when I grew up. And that was okay for people to make fun of us. You know, that, that that's all right. That's a sign that we're serious about our faith. And now, uh, I was, I was in a mega church yesterday. I, we attend a church that's very small, about 30 people generally, but I happen to be in another city and I went with friends to a mega church. And if you look around in terms of dress code, uh, music style, you know, if you just walked in, you would have a hard time saying, this is a church compared to this is a soccer match or something like that. Yeah. Um, and it, so that is, that's different. And, you know, there's some dangers there, I suppose, but it's, uh, we, we've gotten rid of the cage of legalism that upset a lot of people. Still, though, they see the church as a place where people go who think they have it together. Mm-hmm. Or some, some people say that people go over to church have it together. Well, we know that's not true, right. but right. that's the image. So I, I opened the book with this story, same story that was there earlier in earlier editions where this person is in in deep trouble and somebody said, did you think about going to church? And just her explosive comment, church, why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They would just make me feel worse. Mm -hmm. And that's what a lot of people think. And nobody thought that about Jesus. In fact, the worse you felt about yourself, the more attractive Jesus was. And so look at the people who followed him around. You know, they were the prostitutes and the tax collectors and those with leprosy and shameful diseases. And and they went to Jesus because he would make them feel better. <laughs> he would make them better. <laughs> yeah. And somehow we've that's one we need to keep working on. I think the uh you know the early the current generations, millennials and Gen X and Gen Z. Um the only way you can get that one straight is just keep saturating yourself into who Jesus is and, and praying for the what I call grace-healed eyes, the eyes to see people around us as Jesus saw them.
1: I'm going to give you a quote. You wrote, much of the world is living off the moral capital of Christian values, but it seems like the church has kind of forgotten the very values like grace that we're supposed to espouse, I'd love your thoughts because this is a this is a recurring theme over the last number of years on the cultural effects of Christian grace as the church becomes perhaps a little less graceful, the culture is 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 jumping on to Christian values mm-hmm. and the church is missing out on the very thing that is supposed to be ours. Do, mm-hmm. do you want to comment on that because I think that's a very interesting observation
2: yes and Europe is a great example yeah uh, Canada Can we- would be. A little behind Europe, and then the U.S. Mm-hmm. would be a little behind behind Canada in terms of uh, uh, of these issues. But I'll tell you a story. I went to Sweden one time, first time I've been to Sweden, and I didn't know what to expect. And I had been to a lot of uh, developing world co- countries where you have to watch out for pickpockets and dishonesty and stuff like that, and and poverty was in your face everywhere. But in Sweden. I didn't see any poverty. You know, the houses are nice. Even the housing projects are, are nicely kept. And, uh, if, if you pay too much, the shopkeeper would chase you down the street to give you change, you know? <laughs> and it was, it was a place that cared about, uh, charity. It, it's on the top of the list on care for the environment and issues mm-hmm. like that. And that's true of Scandinavia and, and a lot of Europe. These values that are Christian like values they're they're at the top and I had, I've studied the charts so uh the most honest cultures the most transparent cultures those who believe in freedom of the press they're all all except one of the top 20 are usually Christian heritage countries now in Sweden not that many people go to church very few and actually a minority of people believe in god so I'm thinking, okay, where did they get these values? I happened to be reading a book at the time on the history of Europe, and it, it made the little statement that for 250 years, most prayers in the continent ended with a line, Lord, save us from the Vikings. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> did I not thought, know that until I read that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I And I, uh, I thought, what happened to change Sweden from this... Having this reputation of being this raping, pillaging, warring society into modern day Sweden where they care about the environment or, and charity and all these, and issues that are important. And the gospel happened mm. and the gospel grows from the, from the ground up and it changed the culture from the ground up. But then what happens is, and this happened again and again in Europe, the, the religious powers, start cooperating with the secular powers. You've got the Holy Roman Empire, you know, you've got the state churches and all this. And then they start acting like the state. And if you go to Spain today and so many of those countries, uh, Denmark, Czech, they have a Christian history, but you say, why aren't you Christian now? And they will tell you these stories, like in Spain, they'll tell you stories. Well, the church was allied with, with Francisco Franco. And he's oppressing his people. They were unjust. And he's right. So you've got generations who are looking back saying, the the church is just like the government. You can't trust them. They're the enemy. Mm -hmm. And and they've they've missed the whole message of why the church isn't the government. What what we have to offer. What we have to offer is personal transformation that changes communities and then whole societies, as it It did in Europe.
1: Do you think that's a danger for America today? Yeah, I
2: do, for mm. sure. Absolutely, uh, there. You know, it's divided so that uh, the the chairman of the Democratic Party said, "We really have no room in our party for for the for a pro life person." And there are there are people who have values that are very much in concert with Democratic Party platforms. But say there's no room for me because because I feel like they're anti God. You know, a friend of mine started this organization called And, saying that's what the Democrats have left out. And <laughs> we're gonna discover why do I care about the poor? You know, those issues. And, and there's some issues in which I'm more of a Democrat. There are some issues in which I'm more of a Republican. Mm-hmm. And I think, as Martin Luther King said. We are the conscience of the state. You can't be the master of the state. You can't be the servant of the state. We're, we, you got to stand outside of it so you can judge. I don't agree with this policy over here. I don't agree with this policy over here. Because, as, as Jesus said, we're, <laughs> we're in the world but not of the world. You know, we, we, we can't live by those categories. We have our own categories.
1: If there's one message about grace... That you wish church leaders would all hear. What is that message?
2: I wish, I wish that church leaders would find a way to communicate both the high ideals of the gospel and the the safety net of grace. You know, I look, I look at the Sermon on the Mount, and and Jesus keeps pushing the barrier higher and higher. He said. Hey, Okay. You've never killed somebody. Have you ever been angry at your brother? Okay. You've, you've never committed adultery. Have you ever lusted? And, and the people are sitting around saying, who can do that? Yeah. Yeah. We're all doomed. Be, be perfect as your father in heaven is her. Give up. And then in that same sermon, he tells the story of grace that God loves no matter how far you've fallen. And, and that's the story of the Bible. I mean, look at the heroes. The heroes are Moses, who was a murderer and uh, you know had an anger problem? David, who was a murderer and adulterer. Peter, who denied Jesus just like Judas did. Uh, the apostle Paul, who made his living as a as a torturer of Christians. You know, the, and these are the best of the lot. Mm-hmm. So that in, in Jesus' stories and in the stories in the Bible, nobody can say, "Yeah, but not me." I'm beyond the pale. You know, God can't possibly love and use somebody like me. That is the message of grace. And that's a great message of hope that I wish every person who attends church would walk out feeling about themselves on Sunday morning or Friday night, whenever they need. Just to realize that, uh, that amazing, unstoppable love of God. Uh, hmm. Irrational love of God. There's no other way to say it. Um, yeah, I mean, Jesus told the stories, the guy who starts work at five o'clock in the afternoon gets the same pay as the guy who started at eight o'clock in the morning. That's not fair. Nope. And the moral of the story is, yeah, you're right. And if I, I can be generous to whoever I want to be generous, God says, you you know, don't try to box in my generosity. If somebody shows up at five o'clock and, and wants a job, I'll give them a job. <laughs>
1: <You know? laughs> that,
2: that's God's love.
1: Yeah. Philip, I want to thank you for all of your work and for revising and updating what's so amazing about Grace. I hope it gets into, it's gotten into a lot of hands, but a whole new generation of readers discovers it. Books available everywhere you can get books. Where would you direct people online to find you these days? Where are you active?
2: I do have a website. It's called philipyancy.com It's my name. And I'm an old guy, so I still use Facebook. I don't do all these, uh, I don't have a TikTok. I don't have an Instagram and you know, that kind of stuff. But you are but on I, Facebook. I am on Facebook and I do a, a monthly blog, not a daily or a weekly blog, but a monthly blog and, um, and stay in touch with, with readers that way. It's, it's a great way to communicate
1: back and forth. It's wonderful.
2: And some of my stuff is reprinted on some of these others like Instagram, but, uh, I don't personally spend much time there.
1: Beautiful. Well, Philip, thank you so, so much. I'm truly grateful for you.
2: Well, you're doing a wonderful work, Gary, and you're reaching the leaders. And I, I, hope, I hope you can spread to them this message that they can spread to the people. Sitting I hope in the so, piece. too.
1: You know, you mentioned reading the Bible a lot. And the older I get, the more I think I'm the wrong person in the story, that I'm the Pharisee or the guy, the bystander, like, oh, it's like, uh, it is an upside down gospel and I'm seeing it yeah. more and more the older I get. And you are and, one yeah, of the voices. And, and that's
2: the danger. It is the danger. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. To, to get those grace healed eyes and see us ourselves and the people around us as God sees us. That's, that's like those prisms that turn your, your vision upside down, isn't it?
1: <laughs> well, keep writing, keeping a voice, keeping a force for good. Thank you, Philip. Same with you, Carrie. I appreciate it. Well, it's a delight to talk to Philip, and I'm so thankful that he was willing to come on and share his insights with you. Uh, man, we need a lot more grace in the world, don't we? If you want insights from this episode, we have show notes and transcripts for you for free. You can find them at carrynewhoff.com episode 614. Got those for you every single week, so you can explore the archive and uh, enjoy. That's for your pleasure. And that is brought to you by our partners. Hey, did you know that 30% of all giving happens in the last 45 days of the year? So it's not too late to start the year strong. I've got a brand new course called The Art of Building a Generous Congregation. You can join it today at theartofgenerositycourse.com or click the link in the description of this episode wherever you're listening. And then glue... Would love to train your team and volunteers to engage with people digitally and help people find life. You can do that for free over at get.glue.us/slash reach. That's get.gloo.us/slash reach. Well, next episode, we talk to Heather McGowan and we talk about why what made you successful as a leader today will not make you successful in the future, the four shifts that need to happen at work, and a whole lot more. Here's an excerpt. First and foremost, you have to understand that the way you did it is not going to work going forward. And you have Mm. to say, it sucks and I'm sorry. Those are the things you have to start Mm. with. This next generation is not going to do that. And you can try, but they're not going to do that. So if you want to be successful, you have to abandon the things that made you successful to this moment. So first and foremost, wow. that, and it does suck, and I am sorry. But if you want to be successful with this next generation, this post-pandemic workforce, you have to understand that you're only going to be as successful as they are. And so to mm. be as successful as they are, you have to get to know them. That's coming up next time. Also coming up, William Vanderblumen, Jenny Katrin, Karen Gordon. And then in 2024, we kick off a brand new series. It's called... Church trends for 2024. I'm going to sit down with JP Placluta, with Brady Shearer, with David Kinneman, with Ryan Burge, and John Mark Comer, and we are going to have a fantastic conversation about where everything is heading. Uh, I think you're really going to enjoy it. It's a companion to my. Church Trends post that comes out at the beginning of every year. So listen to that. But we're going to do a podcast version of it this year. So uh, sit back, relax, enjoy that flight. And thanks for staying to the end. If you enjoyed this episode, you're probably looking for other podcasts that you'd really love to dial into. Well, I've got a podcast network called the Art of Leadership Network. You can hear from people like Adam Weber, Chris Cook, Jenny Katrin, Tony Newhoff, Rob Meter, Brad Lominick, and a whole lot more. The easiest way to access that content is to follow on the Art of Leadership Network on Instagram. So just find the Art of Leadership Network on Insta and you'll find all the conversations you need. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, man. I so enjoy doing this with you and I really hope our time together today has helped you identify and break a growth barrier you're facing.